0: Um, Father God, you are holy, and we worship you. We thank you for your faithful son, Jesus, and we fix our eyes on him. In this posture of worship and surrender and trust, um, Lord, as always, we pray for our country and our world. We pray for reconciliation, justice, kindness, and grace. Um, We pray that you would use our missionaries scattered all over the world to bring light into dark places and to speak words of truth and hope. Closer to home, um, God, we desire to be a faithful presence here in our neighborhoods, in our school communities, in the Cupertino community um, where we're planted here as church family. We pray specifically for your provision um, for the Kids Club outreach. We thank you again for this opportunity to share truth with young kids week in and week out. Um, We thank you for the relationships that have been built with school staff and kids and families. And we pray for your provision for this coming year for volunteers to step into the work that you are doing. And we pray for George, especially as he continues to faithfully lead this ministry and please provide support for him. Um, Thank you for the opportunity to be present in our community and to serve through Abrahamic Alliance. Um, God, we give you this afternoon's gathering, um, the meal preparation and serving at City Team and just pray that the City Team folks who receive a meal would be blessed by that. Um, Lord, we also thank you for the Help One Child program um, and this chance to support kids in foster care. Um, Please use our body. Um, to care for these kids um, and to bless them. And may they know your love and presence. God, as our youth are heading out on the river camp trip this week, um, we pray for safety for them and for the youth staff going with them. These trips are such a highlight for so many youth. And so we pray for fun and connection and that each of our students would experience your love and presence in ways that strengthen their walk with you this week. We thank you so much for Becca and for her whole youth staff who so faithfully pour into these students on Sunday mornings and at small groups and events throughout the year. Um, Thank you so much for the place that they have in our students' lives. God, we put all these things in your hands Um, We trust and we love you. We give you this morning and um, we pray all of this in your son's powerful name. Amen. All right. Well, now we are going to read um, this morning's scripture text that is going to prepare us for the rest of the morning. I'm going to invite Matea Shi, who's one of our sixth graders and also the daughter of Drew, who is leading music this morning. Um, to read this passage with me. Um, In this passage from Ephesians, Paul is addressing both Jews and Gentiles. Remember at that that time, you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ, In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you two are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. All right, amen. Thanks, Matea, and we're gonna invite Bernard up to preach now.
1: Well, good morning all. So as Drew mentioned, uh, today we return to the book of Hebrews. And uh, since I was last up here in April speaking on the book of Hebrews, I have taken 40 of you to uh, Israel and Jordan. Um, I've been leading tours for 30 years, and uh, nearly 30 years. And uh, the first half dozen tours I led were small. We traveled around in a minibus or minivan and I had no interest in taking a large group, certainly not a busful of people. Uh, But I slowly warmed to the idea, and I came to think that taking a busload of people from the same church uh, would actually be a good idea, would be good for community life. And so it has proven to be. So I've now run six tours using a large tour bus, and it has been a joy to see the community life that develops on that bus and in the hotels. Uh, experience of uh, having a group from here together for two weeks, uh, becoming more closely knit together. Uh, not everybody knows each other at the beginning, but they do by the end, and it's worth investing in those relationships, knowing that you're gonna see each other on subsequent Sundays, at least. Uh, on some of these tours, we've past- faced particular challenges Uh, to which the groups have rallied together in care and support for one another. And this was true again this year. Uh, So we left for Israel one week after the WHO declared an end to the uh, pandemic public health emergency. Uh, But at the end of our first week we got hit by COVID and uh, this spread through the bus and eventually nearly half the group tested positive. But we got to see the group's care and loving concern for one another because we were a family together, brothers and sisters. Uh, We didn't abandon one another and just send people home and uh, want nothing to do with them. We cared for one another. And that was wonderful to see. Uh, So I'm fully convinced of the benefit of taking 40 people away and the community life that develops. because that's what we are, we are a community of God's people, brothers and sisters together. Now we do return to Hebrews after a break of 11 weeks, and since it's been that long, uh, let me quickly recap what this book is about. Though we frequently refer to it as the letter to the Hebrews, this is not a usual letter. It has no introductory greeting. It doesn't identify the author or the recipients. These are unknown, although it is clear that the author knows the recipients well and that he cares deeply for them. He views himself as being part of their same community. He is temporarily separated from them, perhaps by imprisonment, and longs to see them again. And so he writes them this document. And he writes them to encourage them to persevere in the Christian walk. And he writes to them to strengthen their community life together. The sense that they are one. Because it becomes apparent that some of them have stopped meeting together. And his letter, this document, Descent, is best understood as a written sermon. A sermon that expounds the opening sentence. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. throughout the document, this writer repeatedly quotes Israel's scriptures. What God spoke at many times and in various ways in the past to our ancestors through the prophets. And he does so in order to clarify what God has spoken uniquely in these last days to us in the one who is in the category of son, a category of one. Now most of us here are Gentiles, we're not Jews. Our ancestors were not part of ancient Israel nor of first century Judea and Galilee. But we who were formerly far off have been brought near. This was the gist of our scripture reading that we've just heard. In Christ Jesus, God has made the two one, Jew and Gentile together, in Christ as the people of God. We have been grafted into Israel's story. We are children of Abraham. And through Christ, we both have access to the Father by one spirit. And therefore, we can say that God spoke to our ancestors in the past and that he has spoken to us in his son, and therefore we read Israel's scriptures as our backstory, not least so that we can better understand the greater word which God has spoken to us in his son. And we take trips to Israel to see the places of scripture. Now the book of Hebrews is full of Israel's scriptures, of quotations from and allusions to our Old Testament. And it acquired the title to the Hebrews fairly early on, on the assumption that the audience was Jewish believers. But it's clear from elsewhere in the New Testament that Gentile believers were instructed in Israel's scriptures as well, as indeed in order to make sense of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And therefore, I assume that this book is addressed to a mixed audience of Jews and Gentiles brought together in Christ in fulfillment of Israel's scriptures. And therefore we as Gentiles can still read this today with great benefit. Now in chapters one and two, the preacher has shown the superiority of the son to the angels. And in chapter one, he made seven statements about the son, verses two through four, ending with the statement that he sat down at God's right hand, having become superior to the angels. And he followed this with seven quotations from Israel's scriptures. Chapter one, verses five through 14, ending with the invitation, sit at my right hand. But in chapter two, he shows that the son was made lower than the angels. Incarnate as Jesus, he entered into our human world. He became like us, sharing our flesh and blood. He is not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. He shared our humanity to the point of death so that by his death, he might break the power of Satan who holds death. And now, crowned with glory and honor at God's side, Jesus has become a merciful and faithful high priest, representing us, in service to God, in God's very presence. Now in sermons, preachers often alternate between exposition and exhortation. And the preacher of Hebrews does the same. Exposition of the Son, who is Jesus, now in God's presence, and exhortation to action. And this action is usually to pay attention to the Jesus whom he has been expounding. And these exhortations usually include a warning. His first exhortation was in the first four verses of chapter two. We must pay the most careful attention to what we have heard. That is, to what God has spoken through his son. And it comes with a warning, lest we drift away, for how shall we escape if we ignore so great a salvation? And now as we come to chapter three, our text will be the first six verses, and here we encounter another exhortation and another warning. So chapter three, verse one. Therefore, holy brothers and sisters who share in the heavenly calling, fix your thoughts on Jesus, whom we acknowledge as our apostle and high priest. So as indicated by that word, therefore, His exhortation is rooted in the exposition of chapter two. We are holy brothers and sisters. Jesus became like us as our elder brother because God wants through him to bring many sons and daughters to glory. Because he is not ashamed to call us his brothers and sisters, we are all united together as brothers and sisters of one another. And this is the most common way for the New Testament to refer to Jesus followers. Not as Christians, that word's only used three times in the New Testament, but as brothers and sisters. We are a new family in Christ. Furthermore, we are holy, because the one who makes people holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So when we are in Christ, we are set aside unto God. When Jesus makes us holy, because God has appointed him high priest, in which capacity he has entered into God's presence, there to make atonement for our sins. So, God is bringing many sons and daughters to glory, and therefore, as holy brothers and sisters, we share in this heavenly calling. Our vocation, our calling, is to faithfully follow the upward call into God's presence. So we have a path set before us, at the end of which lies rest. Rest into which Jesus has already entered. And we'll hear a lot more about this rest in the next two passages. Now, the preacher's exhortation is to fix your thoughts on Jesus. Or as Eugene Peterson well renders this, take a good hard look at Jesus. And time and again, the preacher sets Christ before us. In his exposition, he places Christ before us to be the object of our attention, the one whom we see. But Jesus is also the one who has gone before us. He is the pioneer, the forerunner, who has faithfully completed the path set before him and has entered into God's presence and we are to faithfully follow him into that same glory. And in my series title, Christ Before Us, I have both of these meanings in mind. So, and we acknowledge Jesus as our apostle and high priest. Now, what do we say about Jesus? When we make our confession about Jesus, for example, in a creedal statement such as the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed, we affirm certain truths about him. And here the preacher draws attention to two specific aspects of Jesus, apostle and high priest. Now, this might seem surprising for none of our creeds make these two statements. Indeed, this is the only place in scripture where Jesus is called an apostle. But Jesus is described, and he describes himself as one who was sent, which is the meaning of an apostle, one who is sent. And then the immediate context here, God sent the Son into the world to become like us, to share our humanity, even to the point of death. He became human so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest. So we see that Jesus' identity and ministry as apostle and high priest are closely tied together. As apostle, he was sent from God to earth to share our humanity, and as high priest, he returns as human to God's presence to minister. He ministered there by making atonement for the sins of the people, for us. And he continues to minister there, helping those who are in need, helping those who are being tested. And our heavenly calling is to faithfully follow him to glory, to faithfully follow him into God's presence. Now, after this exhortation, the preacher returns to exposition verses two through six. He has already compared Jesus to the angels in chapters one and two, and now he compares Jesus to Moses. Who is Moses? Well, only the greatest figure of Israel's scriptures, the greatest prophet of the past, when God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets. And he develops his comparison between Jesus and Moses in three stages. First, Jesus is comparable to Moses in verse two. He, that is Jesus, was faithful to the one who appointed him, just as Moses was faithful in all God's house. So, Jesus and Moses were both faithful. It was because Jesus was faithful, even unto death, that God vindicated him in resurrection and exaltation. And Jesus continues to be faithful as our high priest. Moses was faithful in all God's house. How was he faithful? Well, he led the Israelites out of Egypt. He mediated the covenant between God and his people, at Mount Sinai. He received the instructions for the tabernacle and he assembled the tabernacle. He remained faithful when all around him were faithless. Twice he interceded for the people when they rebelled against God and against himself. Even his siblings, Mariam, and Aaron rebelled against him. And it was on that occasion, the occasion of the rebellion of his very siblings, that the Lord distinguished Moses with the words quoted here, which are from Numbers chapter 12. He is faithful in all my house. With him I speak face to face, clearly and not in riddles. He sees the form of the Lord. So Moses had a unique relationship with God, unparalleled, in the Old Testament. And just as Moses remained faithful, though surrounded by people who were unfaithful, so Jesus remained faithful, despite all around abandoning him. He was faithful to the end when he committed his spirit to God and cried out, it is finished. So both Jesus and Moses were models of faithfulness. Next, in verses three and four, the preacher distinguishes Jesus from Moses, not to put Moses down, but to exalt Jesus. He says, Jesus has been found worthy of greater honor than Moses, just as the builder of a house has greater honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but God is the builder of everything. So here he likens the relationship between Jesus and Moses to that between a house builder and the house. Now we all know a house is not a natural feature. It doesn't come together spontaneously. It is manufactured. It is conceived and constructed by someone. And the builder is greater than his or her building. Now in May, in Israel, we saw some of the buildings of King Herod the Great. And his buildings, some of which still stand, testify to his greatness as a builder. And therefore he's often referred to as Herod the Builder. Um, Magnificent Builder. And then even today, uh, signature buildings are often known by their architect. So uh, just a few examples here out of many I could have picked. So the Louvre Pyramid uh, in Paris uh, is I.M. Pei's Louvre Pyramid. We have Frank Gehry's Guggenheim Museum Bilbao that um, featured in the start of the Tour de France this year. Uh, Norman Foster's The Gherkin in London and just down the street the Apple Park and Calatrava's Cords Bridge that was visible from our hotel in Jerusalem, a little. Um, So, uh, signature buildings, Uh, that bring glory, also firstly to the building, but even more so to the architect conceiving them. In associating Jesus with the builder and naming the ultimate builder as God himself, the preacher makes an implicit claim that Jesus is God. Indeed, the opening sentence identified the son with creation, with God's building of the universe. Jesus the son through whom also he, that is God, made the universe. Now because Jesus has been found worthy of greater glory and honor, we now see Jesus crowned with glory and honor. He has already entered into glory, going before us. And then finally, the third stage of this comparison between Moses and Jesus, the preacher places Jesus in a completely different category than Moses. Verses five and six a. Moses was faithful as a servant in all God's house, bearing witness to what would be spoken by God in the future. But Christ is faithful as the son over God's house. So the preacher again quotes Numbers 12. Both Christ, Moses and Christ were faithful. We already had that in verse two, but now we see that they were faithful in quite different roles. Moses was faithful as a servant in God's house, and the Greek word used here is not the usual word for servant. In the New Testament it's used only here, and in the Greek Old Testament it's used only of Moses, suggesting his unique role and status. His service to God was not a menial role, but an exalted privileged position. Furthermore, his ministry was not just for that time, but had a forward horizon to it. He bore testimony to what would be spoken in the future, to the greater word which God would speak in these last days through his son. Moses, a servant in God's house, foreshadowed the one who would be son over God's house. And this son Incarnate as Jesus the Christ, now and exalted and a at God's right hand, and ministering as high priest, is faithful over God's house as son, as the one who inherits. So what is this house? Well, the preacher tells us in the second half of verse six, and we are his house. If indeed we hold firmly to our confidence and the hope in which we glory, we are his house. Now, most of us are familiar with this language. We are the household of God, a disparate people, all brought together under one roof. We are one new family, brothers and sisters together. We are also God's house, inasmuch as we are his temple, wherein he makes his dwelling. Again, as we were reminded in our scripture reading in Ephesians two, we are members of his household built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple to the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. But there is a conditionality. An if clause. We are God's house, both his household and his dwelling place, if. If we hold firmly to our confidence and the hope in which we glory. Now, this doesn't sit well with many people. Surely, once saved, always saved. But here it seems there's a possibility of losing our place in God's household. How can there be an if? Well, this is but one of several warning passages in this book, and these warnings trouble many people depending on their theology. And so periodically, as we work our way through Hebrews, we will encounter these warnings, and we'll uh, have to deal with them. What do we make of them? Well, in this condition, the if condition, there are two things that we need to hold on to, our confidence and the hope in which we glory. And both of these need some explanation because it would be all too easy to just run right over them and say, oh yes, I know those words and not think much more about it. The first word denotes a state of boldness and confidence, especially in the presence of someone of high rank. It's the confidence that we have access to that presence and that we belong there in that presence. It's what a child ought to feel in the presence of a parent that the child can run into the parent's arms, into the parent's presence. Here it means the confidence that we have access to God's presence, that we belong there. And sadly, many Christians don't really believe this. Now there's a line in the hymn, God moves in a mysterious way that runs Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. Providence here refers to the circumstances of our life. And when things are going against us, we can readily assume that God himself is frowning upon us or that he is displeased with us. We neither see nor sense his smiling face. So when you think of God's face turned towards you, what do you see? A frowning face, an angry face, a disappointed face, a face that is turned away? Or do you see someone else's face on God's face? Does the thought of God's face looking at you fill you with fear lest he strike you? Or with shame because you don't measure up, you're not good enough, or you have been found out? Or with resentment, because he hasn't come through. He hasn't delivered what you feel owed or promised. Or even with horror, because of some past trauma. And I'm sure many of you do. You feel that God doesn't like you, let alone love you. God's presence is not a safe, welcoming place. Now several times I've heard Paul Young, the author of The Shack, Uh, Speak Twice I've heard him say that it took 50 years to wipe his father's face off of the face of God. And only then did he see God's face as a safe place to be. Some of you, I'm sure, feel the same. God's presence is not a safe place. But for others... I'm sure you do see God's face as a safe place. You see a smiling face, one that fills you with comfort and joy. You are secure in his love and pleasure. Well, how is it that we have access to God's face, that we have access to God's presence? Because Jesus is our high priest. Sent from heaven to be like us, he is now returned as one of us into God's presence, for he ministers as high priest on our behalf. He is one of us there. But he is also God's best beloved, the one in whom he has always been well pleased. And when we are in Christ, when we are in corporate solidarity with him as those whom he is not ashamed to call his brothers and sisters, then God is well-pleased with us, too. We, too, are his beloved. Furthermore, because Jesus shared our humanity, he knows our weakness. He knows when we need help. He is merciful, and therefore, he is able to help those who are being tempted. This theme will be repeated throughout the sermon. This is a major concern of the preacher here, writing this document to those he cares deeply for, is that they know that they are welcoming God's presence. This word confidence is a crucial word in Hebrews. It's used four times in significant places. The great central section of the book that we'll eventually get to uh, the end of chapter four through the end of chapter 10 is all about Jesus as the high priest. Both his superior status as high priest and his superior offering of himself. And the section begins and it ends with assurance of our access to God through Jesus, our high priest. So it begins this way, in chapter four, verse 14. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. We do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses but we have one who's been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence, that's the same word here, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. And then the section ends in chapter 10, verse 19. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence, the same word, to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, So in both cases, confidence is associated with drawing near to God through our great high priest. And so Charles Wesley wrote in his great hymn, Bold I Approach the Eternal Throne. So we hold on to this privileged access that we have to God's presence, even now through our high priest, Jesus. The second thing we hold on to is the hope in which we glory. Now, that in which we glory is that which we treasure, that which we are not ashamed to own. Indeed, that which we are proud or boast about, that which we place our stock in. For some, it might be educational achievement or professional advancement or a fast car or a nice house or a perfect family. Here in Silicon Valley, there are sorts of things that people place their stock in, that they boast about, that they glory in. But the preacher says that what we should place our stock in is hope. So what is our hope? Well, later the preacher will state that faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. Faith and hope are closely tied together. We're on a journey, at the end of which lies entrance into God's rest. We're not there yet, but by faith, we have confidence that this is the reality that lies at the end of our earthly pilgrimage. Therefore, by faith, we persevere in following Jesus, who is the pioneer and perfecter of faith. We fix our eyes on him, on Christ before us, Though we do not see with physical eyes, we hold on in faith that Christ is already in God's presence for he ministers on our behalf as a merciful and compassionate high priest. And our firm and certain hope is at the end of our pilgrimage, we will follow him into that presence. That presence which is glory and the prospect of which is that in which we now glory. Now, as God's household, we already have this confidence and this hope. We already have access to God's presence now through our high priest, and we have the sure and certain hope that we will join him there at the end of our pilgrimage. Provided we hold on to these certainties that we already have, we will faithfully complete the journey. See, we already have this. It's just a matter of not letting go. Jesus is the anchor for our soul. With our eyes set on Christ before us, we will avoid drifting away. We hold on. Now many things are not secure enough for us to hold on to, including all the things that the world glories in, the education, the professional advancement, the fast cars, the houses, everything. But Jesus is secure. We hold on to him. We hold on to the access that we already have into the Father's presence through him and the hope that we have. Now it's clear in Hebrews that some were being tempted to abandon the journey. They were being tested in their faithfulness, hence the if. But God wants us to complete the journey, for he is bringing many sons and daughters to glory, and he has provided help, our great high priest how do we keep our gaze on Jesus and hold on to these spiritual realities of our current access to God's presence through Jesus and the hope of joining Jesus there in his presence? Well, the preacher encourages us to keep meeting together. We gather together to remind ourselves of these spiritual realities. As our worship guide states each week, we gather in worship to remind ourselves who God is, what he has done in Christ, and what he is doing through his spirit. We remind ourselves who Jesus is so that we more clearly see him before us. We do this by reading scripture and by hearing it expounded. We can do this by reciting the creed in which we confess our faith, in which we acknowledge realities about the triune God. We can do this by singing hymns and songs which set Christ before us. As we sang earlier today and as we've sung previously in my Hebrew series and as we're gonna sing, I hope, many more times, before the throne of God above, I have one strong and perfect plea, a great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the wrong within, upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. Because we are God's house, the preacher exhorts us to meet together, to encourage one another. Now we are so prone to think individualistically, but we are not isolated individuals walking the path on our own. We are on this pilgrimage together. Now in saying this, I'm conscious that many of our songs are individualistic, uh, even many of the great hymns. Actually, some of our more modern songs are a bit better at this. Uh, Including what we just sang, before the throne of God above, I have one strong and perfect plea. And also um, we're gonna sing, I can cannot be that I should gain. So I, not we. But this is not the language of the New Testament, and certainly not of Hebrews. The preacher usually includes himself in his exhortations. We must pay the most careful attention. How shall we escape if we ignore so great a salvation? If we hold firmly, when he speaks in second person, it's plural. Fix your, plural, thoughts on Jesus whom we acknowledge. We are on this path together. And there are various ways that we can connect together with one another here at PBCC, so that we walk the Christian life together as we, not me. We have connection groups, we have Bible studies, we have the Life Together class. We have opportunities to pray together. So just as uh, the preacher encourages his uh, addressees to not neglect meeting together, we meet together to encourage one another and remind ourselves that we are on this journey towards God together. I'd like to invite the band to come up as I close here. So we are God's house. We are a more beautiful building than any of the great buildings I showed up on the screen. We are holy brothers and sisters. We are sons and daughters whom God is bringing to glory. God is for us. He has appointed a high priest to be in his presence on our behalf. Upward, we look and see him there. And therefore, we can boldly approach